Bible makes your life better, but the Bible also makes you better at life. You know, last week we celebrated the holiday known as Easter, but thankfully Easter is not just a one-time occurrence, but a weekly, even daily celebration. Because just as Jesus rose 2,000 years ago, he is still risen today. And he's the reason why we are here. And so over the next several weeks in this new series, what we wanna do is that we wanna get super practical because heaven doesn't start the moment you die. It actually starts the moment that you come to have a personal relationship with Jesus. In other words, we don't just live with our will up to heaven, but rather we pray for God's will to be done here on earth. And so what we wanna do is that we wanna look through the lens of God's map, God's game plan for our lives. And we wanna help you take your faith and your life to the next level. I've never met a person who came up to me and said, John, my life is too good. I just wish it was worse. You know, I, I really hope that this next year my finances take a dip in the wrong direction. I really hope that my work environment just gets more difficult and that my relationships become more contentious. No, it doesn't matter who you are, that we all want better. We all want more and we long for new. Thankfully, God's word is here to guide us and to give us that education that we need to go to the next level. And so our series is entitled Empower University. And there'll be a test next week. And so, no, I'm just kidding. There's, no, there's gonna be no tests yet anyway. This series is young. But uh, what we wanna do is we wanna, we wanna really put your faith in session, in class. And we wanna help you take a next step or go to the next level to level up in your faith and in your relationships and in your workplace. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna see what does God's word have to say about the practical elements in our lives? What does God's word have to say about finances, about work, about prayer, about relationships and parenting and marriage and friendship? And so we're gonna look through the practical ins and outs of our daily lives, but through the lens of scripture. And so this morning's message is really gonna set the tone or the foundation for the rest of the series. And so there are parts in the Bible that are seen as descriptive and there are parts that are seen as prescriptive. Descriptive means that there is a story to be told. So it's not necessarily like this will happen all the time, but this is what has happened. And then you can see how God worked in that situation. That's descriptive. Then you have other passages that are prescriptive, like you would take a prescription or medicine. In other words, what was true then is true now. And so we, we can take that truth directly to the bank. Well, today we're gonna to take a look at a, at a story that is descriptive, but inside of it has prescriptive truth. In other words, it's a really cool story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible, actually, just because of the boldness behind it and the guys involved. But from that one story, we're gonna see truth that still applies to us today, 2,000 years later. Now, to, to set up our story and to set up our series, I want everybody in the room and everybody watching online to go ahead and take out your phone for just a moment. Take out your phone. Because this, what I'm about to share with you, helped my understanding of faith and, and, and kind of really 
have an aha moment for what faith truly is and what faith is not. See, our phones are pretty incredible devices. It's crazy to think that just two decades ago, not that many people had phones, let alone smart devices. It's wild to know that there is more computing power in your smart device today than the computers used to help land someone on the moon. Think about that. There's more technology in your pocket than what they had to land someone on the moon. Now the question is, what are you doing with all of that power? Because if you're like me, you have some random apps on your phone. Go ahead right now. Is anyone, anyone here, you don't have to shout it out, but anyone here download an app for one thing or one moment and then you just, it just lives there forever on your phone? You know what I'm talking about? Like you have pages of apps on your phone and having young kids at home and being a pastor, it, my phone is like part ministry, part game for elementary age boys. But I, okay, I guess that is kind of fitting. But I have these random apps that once I download it, I, I just never seem to find the time or priority to delete them. And so I end up with like random ones on my phone. So like right now, as I'm scrolling through, oh, I have one, I forgot about that one. I have one called Auto Wrap, where <laughs> there was an app a couple years ago where a T-Pain came out where you could speak into the phone and it would turn your speech into a rap song. Okay, that, that was helpful. Glad I have that on there. Um, got some kids playing Pokemon Go. Okay, that's, uh, that's business-like, sure. Um, and uh, I have on here, oh, I have a random number generator that I used for a sports camp one time that I needed for something. Uh, why am I sharing this? Well. There are different apps on your phone that are used for different things. Actually, I was curious about this, and so I looked up what were the top five most downloaded apps in 2020. Top five most downloaded applications for a smart device. And so when you combined uh, the Apple Store, the Google Play Store, and, and Androids, and all the stores globally, these were the top five apps. I'm curious to see if you have these apps on your phone. Number five was Zoom. Number five most downloaded apps was on, on Zoom, which is needed for all of our business calls and school calls. Number four was the WhatsApp, not WhatsApp, the WhatsApp. And so it's a communication app where you can make phone calls without using data there. Uh, you have number three was Instagram. Instagram was the third most downloaded application in 2020. Number two was Facebook, the most downloaded application. And number one, can you guess it? MySpace, I even, you even remember that MySpace was a thing. Wow, so if you're updating your MySpace, you probably don't have a smart device, okay. <laughs> and uh, no, number one was TikTok. That's where we are as a country, okay. And so to honor the most downloaded application, I've. I've actually created a series of dances that I'm gonna perform for you right now. No. Yeah. Yeah, I heard a no. <laughs> I'm with you, okay, we're in agreement. No one wants to see their pastor try to do a TikTok dance, okay. So here's the thing. There's more computing power than what they had to land on the moon and the number one application was TikTok. Woo, go humanity. <laughs> Why do I share this though? I share because I think a lot of people treat faith like an application on their smartphone. 
Maybe it's even the most important one. Maybe you have a series of applications that stay on the homepage, you know, phone, email, maybe the YouVersion Bible app or something like that. Maybe you have a series of applications that live on the homepage of your phone. The problem is, is that you can open and close different applications. There are some people whose faith is like that application that just is somewhere on their phone, but they only pull it up maybe once a year. Or maybe once a week for one hour on the weekend. But here's what I've come to realize, that faith is not an app. It's not something that you can open and close. Faith is not an app. It's the operating system. There's a huge difference. When you think of faith as an app, even if it's most important, you can open and close it at your own convenience. But none of the applications work. None of the applications work without the operating system. All applications need to function within that operating system. In the same way, your faith and my faith is meant to be the operating system through which we see everything else. Because if you have faith as an application, then maybe you have uh, marriage and parenting, business, how you act at night, how you act during the day, how you act on the weekend. They can all be separated. But faith is not a box to be checked or an application to be opened. It's the operating system that makes everything else go. In other words, if you have faith as your operating system that impacts your relationship, your marriage, your parenting, your workplace, your attitude, your speech, your conduct, your motivation, everything in your world is impacted by your operating system. And when you have faith as your operating system, it changes everything. So we're gonna take a look at a story found in the book of Acts, the first start of the church. We're gonna land in Acts chapter four, but let me give you a little bit of context before we jump in. So Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day. Woo, go Jesus, okay. So now we go to Acts chapter one. He had been with the disciples for about 40 days, and he tells them this in Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, you will receive power. That same power that just rose me from the grave, the same power that just conquered death itself is now available to you and I'm giving you in the form of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit functions as the substitute presence of Jesus in the believer's life. So Jesus is, is called the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. And so the idea here is that when you live a spirit-filled life, a spirit-led life, that you have access to the same power that defeated and conquered death. That's a crazy promise. Well, in Acts chapter two, the, that promise is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit comes down. The disciples are filled with that spirit. They preach, and the audience hears the gospel message, hears the gospel message in the language that they are familiar with. So the disciples preach in what they know, but the audience hears in the language that they can understand. And that was the first time they were speaking in tongues. And so you see this crazy experience and 3,000 people get saved. 
Now, this is not a crazy metropolitan city that we think of. So imagine a movement where 3,000 people get saved. Boom, the church has started. That's Acts chapter two. And then in chapter three, Peter and John, these are ordinary dudes. They are hardworking, blue-collar fishermen. They, Peter had messed up a bunch of times. He walked on water, but then he fell down. He said, Jesus, I will never leave you. And then he denies Jesus three times. The last time, pretty much to like a slave girl there, he's like, no, 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 I'm not associated with him. That Peter, the one who like was terrified, even when Jesus rose from the dead and met with the disciples and when he was there, Peter didn't know what to do. So he went back to his profession. He was fishing. And in this great story that we don't have time to get into, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus walks along shore and calls Peter in and restores Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus restores him, says, do you love me? Three times. And then gives him this vision, this mission that ultimately he would go on to start the church. And so in Acts chapter two, he starts the church. He has boldness because he's filled with power. And then they see this guy who is crippled from birth and he's asking just for help. And Peter and John, and they say, hey, gold and silver, I can't give you, but what I give you, I will. Rise and walk. And through that power, the Holy Spirit power, this crippled man walks and even more people get saved. And so now the church has grown now to 5,000 people. And the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, there's this group of about 70 guys who are mostly Sadducees, these powerful political people who didn't believe in the resurrection. Imagine, there's 5,000 people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus in this town where the leaders who had power and authority over them were like, nah, no, it didn't, didn't happen. Like, you ever have an uh, argument with your kids or with a sibling when you were younger and their only argument is, no, it didn't. Oh, can you believe this happened? It didn't happen. I remember one time talking with one of my kiddos who loves to argue. I was like, man, you argue all the time with me. No, I don't. Exhibit A, okay. And so you got 5,000 people believing in the resurrected Jesus. This massive movement started. This crippled guy now is walking around, talking to people. They, know the guy. they knew this guy from birth, and now he's walking. And they're like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And so they didn't know what to do, and so they said, you know what, lock him up. So the Sanhedrin meets in the morning. It was evening time. And so they know, well, let's just arrest Peter and John, throw them in jail, and let's see what happens the next morning. So you got Sadducees who love power. They don't believe in the resurrection. You have a minority group there called Pharisees who they memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they keep the law. They wanna keep the law. And so these powerful, educated people, there's 70 plus the high priests now are there. And now you can picture this public spectacle because imagine if someone, this ordinary guy, these fishermen are proclaiming Jesus and healing people. And they're like, uh, put him in jail. But they can't keep him in jail forever. So now they pull Peter and John out. Just picture there's a crowd. There's 70 rulers. The same rulers, mind you. The same group of people that condemned and killed Jesus just a couple months ago. And now they pull these guys out. And here's where we pick up the story. Verse 5 in Acts chapter 4. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Man, think about the suspense, okay? With Ananias the high priest 
and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all kind of in the family. That's how it worked back then. If you're a family member, okay, you get a political position. You get a position. You get a position. That's different than today, right? Okay, anyway, so they're there, and they said, when they set them in their midst, they said, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, pause here for a second. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they can't even acknowledge the miracle that just took place. A guy who was crippled now is walking around, and you're gonna find out in just a minute, is standing right next to Peter. And they, didn't, they can't even acknowledge. So say, by what power, I mean, maybe this is satanic, maybe this is maybe the magic trick, I don't know. By what power did you, did you do this, this? That's how they referred to it. What, what power did you do this thing? This, this stuff, whatever it was. You mean heal a crippled person that can now walk? No, no, I mean, you call it that, like whatever, this thing. You know, just try to undersell it. Okay, by what power do you do this? And then Peter, notice this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's not his own strength, right? He's got that Jesus kind of power now. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You got the scene? You got 71 religious leaders high up in their council, in their robes, the same people that just killed Jesus a couple months ago. You got the crowd forming around. You got the crippled guy standing ne- that now can walk standing next to him. And then Peter, the same fisherman, ordinary guy that was hiding a couple months ago that doesn't know how to put two sentences together. And notice his response, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. No, see, he makes reference to the crowd. I'm speaking not just to you, but to everybody who's gonna hear this. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he got super specific. Why? Because they got specific when they crucified Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, He's taking that little dagger and going, the same guy that you killed is the same guy that rose again and, and made this and healed this man. It says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. So they're in the area, you have the temple, right? The, in the temple, for those that know the Easter story, there was the Holy of Holies, there was a 40-foot veil that stepped in there. Only the high priest could go in once a year. That veil was torn. And so you got this temple still in the city. This, the temple would ultimately get destroyed in 70 AD. But you have this massive temple, all these religious leaders, everything here, and he says, this person whom you killed, who you rejected, has become the cornerstone the stone from which all other stones will be placed, the the anchor, the foundation of everything that we believe and who we become. He says, this Jesus has become the cornerstone, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now notice this verse. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they're like, wait, This guy, this is the same guy, right? This is the same guy that went running before. When they saw the boldness and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And then I love this. I love this verse. I, I always quoted 13, but I think 14 might actually be my favorite verse now. You know, I always skipped 14, but notice this. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. So here he is boldly proclaiming, Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus is the power that saved this man. And so they recognized that their boldness came from Jesus and the guy that was healed was literally standing right there. <laughs> Mic drop, right? The greatest picture or apologetic you can have in, in, in faith and in life is a transformed life. And you have someone who is healed and transformed from the inside out standing before the council and they, they, they're speechless. They literally speak for a living and they're left speechless. And they end up letting them go. Isn't that crazy? What was the difference? Did you catch that phrase in there? They were astonished at their boldness. But what? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now they didn't have smart devices back then. Okay? So they weren't having conversations about applications and operating systems. But you can see that faith didn't just take over a part of who Peter and John were, but it took over everything about who they were, what they would say, and what they would do so that they could stand up before the very people that killed Jesus and boldly proclaim that it's only through him that they can be saved. Isn't that awesome? And here's what's crazy. That same power that was found in that story, these everyday, ordinary people who took a stand for Jesus, is available for you watching right now, you in the room and me. That concept of power translates through the rest of the New Testament. There's this really cool verse that I feel like almost nobody really knows about because you don't really hear about it, talked about a lot. But it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. It reads this, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, in other words, the kingdom of God is not this, okay? It's not a talking head, but it exists in power. Ooh, that's good right there, right? It means that we don't just sit back and, and believe in just words, but instead we live, we walk, and we love in power. Our operating system it's the same power that conquered death itself. And that's the same power that we have access to. And that power infiltrates every little thing that we do. Every conversation we have, every action we take, every thought that we think, emotion we feel, is translated through or works through that lens. Philippians chapter three, we just finished a series on Philippians. Paul is writing, he says, I count all things, I consider all things, I count it all as lost compared to knowing Jesus. And notice this verse in 310, that I may know him and what? Know the power of the resurrection. I wonder how many people know the resurrection versus how many people understand and believe the power of the resurrection. There's a difference, isn't there? It's one thing to be legally married, it's another thing to have an incredible, thriving, growing marriage, right? It's one thing to have the paperwork, it's another thing to have the relationship. 
And Paul's saying, I consider everything lost, not just compared to knowing that Jesus died. I compare everything a loss compared to experiencing that power, the same power that conquered the grave through the Holy Spirit is now available and is in me. And if the same power that conquered death lives in me, there is no sin that is too great that God's grace and forgiveness is not greater still. There is no addiction so powerful that God's power cannot overcome. You can clap for that, that's good. I saw one person clapping. It's a good thing. We have access to this. It changes everything. It's not just a head acknowledgement, but a walk and living in power. Then 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. The same power that made that crippled man walk can heal your marriage, can help you conquer that addiction, that can give you the attitude and that and the words to say and the actions to take so that you can stand as a transformed man or woman to leave this world feeling speechless. Because the Sanhedrin had all the knowledge, but they didn't know the power. They had an application that they could open up and quote something from here or there, but they didn't have the spirit in their hearts and in their lives. Because when you have the power of God in you, it changes everything around you. What I've found is that when people have doubts, they tend to use their doubts or view their doubts as a negative thing. I don't think it is. I don't think doubt is a negative thing. Because doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. And so what happens is when you have doubt, what you do is that you start to investigate that a little bit further. And if you do that, you'll actually come to a stronger foundation of faith. So turn to your neighbor real quick and say, doubt's a part of the process. It's kind of a mouthful, so I'll give you one more chance. People are like, say something, what, what? There's a, saw a couple of heads pop up, okay. This is where we're gonna engage together. And so here's where I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, doubt is part of the process. When I was in Mexico a few weeks ago, we were building a house. We were mixing concrete by hand. And, okay, so it's not technically correct because that would be, you know, hand would, anyway. So, by shovel, okay? So we're mixing concrete by shovel. And you had to get the right combination of gravel and concrete mix and water. And you're going through, and as you're mixing, you would be short one thing or the other, right? If it's too soupy, you'd add more mix. If it was too thick, you'd add more water. And so you're kind of mixing, and as you're observing it, you're adding a little bit, adding a little bit. And as you get to the end, you get a stronger foundation that ultimately we laid to be the foundation for that house. When you have doubts in this life and doubts in your faith, that's a chance for you to examine the mixture and add a little bit more of what you need. And the end result is a stronger foundation, not a weaker one. So don't be scared if your child is expressing doubt. That's okay to have doubts. I am more concerned when those doubts go unexpressed. Because when you express the doubt, you can investigate and go further because Jesus Christ is the truth. And so if you're skeptical, I wanna encourage you to be skeptical enough. In other words, if you ask the question, are you brave enough to seek the answer? 
Because if you do that, you'll find the truth, and the truth is Jesus, and that truth will set you free. Guys like C.S. Lewis had a ton of doubt, but when he came to faith in Jesus, he became one of the most prolific Christian authors of all time. Lee Strobel was a journalist who set out to disprove Christianity, and when he started looking through the facts, he actually came to faith in Jesus, and now has written and sold books, Case for Faith, Case Case for Christ, and one of the most purchased books in the country when it comes to faith is a journalist's perspective of how he set out to disprove Christianity and instead came to believe it to be true. And so if you have a doubt, don't be afraid of that. Instead, explore that, go deeper. Because here's what I found though. Some people, not you guys in the room, not you guys, maybe the online audience, not you guys, but the online audience maybe does this. Here's what I've seen happen. Someone will be right here. We'll say faith in Jesus is right here. And something comes in between them. And it's a legitimate question. So let's say, for example, they have, they're living here, and their question is, well, how can there be a God if evil exists? That's an intense question, right? So what happens, though, is people will ask the question and not seek the answer. And the reason is because they just want something to block between them and God so then they can turn and live however they want. I don't really wanna know the answer to that question. I just wanna sleep with whoever I want to. I wanna drink what, what I want. I wanna do what I want, say what I want, how I want to, because it's my truth. You can't tell me what's true. Yeah, he can, he's God. How does that work if you got kids? You can't tell me, mom, dad, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah, I can, and I will, <laughs> again and again, <laughs> okay? Does God not get that same privilege for us? Because see, here's what happens. They ask a legitimate question, but they never seek the answer. And so now there's something between them and faith, something between them and God. And if you never seek that answer, you start going your own way. And that gap becomes further and further. But if you become skeptical enough and you start leaning in enough and you say, okay, well, let's take that one example. How can there be a God when there's evil in the world? Okay. Well, first of all, how do you actually define evil? Well, it's bad. Okay, well, how do, you, how do you define bad? Not good. Okay, well, how, how do you find good? God. <laughs> okay. You see where I'm going with this? Like, think about it for a second. Have you ever been mad at God because you didn't think something was right? Do you ever stop to think why you get mad? Right, I've shared this before with some people, but you don't get mad at imaginary things, right? Like you don't come home from a bad day and go home and go, ah, oh, unicorns! Sorry if I just bursted some bubbles. I'm willing to be wrong on that. If there's unicorns out there, look, I'm on board. If we can find them, I'm in, okay? Sounds awesome. But think about it, you don't get mad at imaginary things. And why do you get mad in the first place? Well, you get mad when there's wrong, when there's death, when there's loss. Why? Because you know that you know that you know that you are meant for something more and that there is something good. And if it doesn't match up with what is good, what is joy, what is purpose, what is love, it doesn't resonate and we get upset and we can't understand it. And so then we find ourselves yelling at God that he doesn't exist. When if, in reality, if there is no God, then there is no evil because there's nothing wrong. You ever think about that? If there is no definition of God, then there is no definition of evil, and then it's fair, everything's fair game. But it's not fair game. 
Because truth is relative until it hurts you, right? It's my truth, standing in my truth, unless you get into my little circle of truth, then that's offensive. You see, the very standard itself comes from God. And that, yes, evil exists, but you know what? That's why Jesus came. And he lived and he died and he rose again. So that one day, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more evil, and Satan will get what's coming to him, amen? And so we might not be done with the battle, but I can tell you this, Jesus has already won the war. And that's the power that we have access to. So the disciples, everything changed when they had been with Jesus. For us, faith is not an app that we open and close depending on when we see fit. It's the operating system that makes everything else go. Okay, but how do we do that? What do the disciples do? What did Jesus do? Let me share with you four things that you can connect to Jesus with this week. This is what Jesus himself did and told us to follow him. And then the disciples did that and that's where they got that power, that boldness from. Number one, if you wanna spend more time with God this week, it starts off with solitude and Sabbath. Regularly in the gospel, Jesus got away to be alone with God, the Father. There's relationship there. It's hard to hear the voice of God when you're listening to all the noise. And I think in today's age, it's even harder because we got those devices that are buzzing every second of every day. It's never been easier to be distracted. So can you find that specific time to get away and be alone with God every day? And before you say, John, I'm too busy, because that that's been my excuse before. I, I'm too busy. Okay, two, two thoughts here. One, Jesus died for the whole world while sustaining its very existence. Are you busier than that? You know, like, okay, picture yourself when you've had a really busy day, right? And you come home, oh man, like that, you, you know, maybe you're high in business, multi-million dollar decisions, all this stuff, all these employees, you're putting out fires, health stuff, everything, paying bills, and you go home and your little kid's like, I know, I get it. I get it, mom, dad. My shoe came untied. I didn't know what to do. It's rough. And you're like, you have no idea how hard life can be. Can we say the same for God, right? You have no idea how full, and we have no idea what busy really is. But yet Jesus still took time. And then one day a week, and this is an indictment on myself as well, I say this collectively together, because we're all broken people pursuing a perfect God. And so Jesus created the world as we know it, and then took a day of rest. Anyone else create the entire universe from nothing? No? Okay. <laughs> this is the example that Jesus and God gave us, is to have a regular rhythm of rest, a regular rhythm, why? To connect, to spend time. And when you get alone with God, you can hear his voice. You can think more clearly. It's beyond just mindfulness. <laughs> it's mindful of Christ and mindful of who you are in Christ. Second, scripture. Jesus quoted the 
Old Testament 70 times in the Gospels. He didn't just know the word, he used the word. In fact, that's what God did to defeat temptation is that he quoted scripture. Do you know the Bible well enough to quote it when Satan attacks? Now, I'm not saying go home and like read the entire thing in one day because that seems overwhelming. But just keep learning, start somewhere. You didn't learn everything about your spouse on the first date. That would be weird. You just have this long checklist. Okay, what do you believe about this? Okay, what about this? And you just go through. All right, I know everything I had to know. I'm good to go. No, it, it takes time, right? You learn that relationship grows with time and experience together. Okay. That's how you can approach scripture. Third, prayer. Now, we're gonna spend more time on prayer next week, so I wanna encourage you to tune in or be back next week as we talk about more in detail what it means to have empowered prayer. But for now, I just highlight the fact that Jesus prayed, that he connected to his heavenly Father, and he tells us to pray. Do we tap into that power? Do we connect our souls to be able to listen, to anchor ourselves to what God has to say to us? And the last thing is worship. The natural response to the power of God is worship. Because if you spend time alone with God in his word, in prayer, and in worship, I promise you, your faith is gonna change. Your life is gonna transform. But not through your power, but through the spirit. So in closing, I wanna, I wanna encourage you, everybody in the room and watching online to do this. If you wanna grow in your faith, we've actually created a great resource. It's called Experience Jesus. It's available, you can visit our digital bulletin at missiongrove.info, it's just one click. And there we've created a four week devotional experience. There are 20, so like five videos a week, like three to five minute videos that help you connect to Jesus to empower you with the faith that you've been longing for. And if some of you have walked through this, the challenge for you is to actually take somebody through it with you again. And if you've never gone through it before, I'd be happy to walk with you. There are people in this room who have studied this, they're happy to walk with you. There is a kind of a workbook and some videos and scripture, and it's just meant to give you a foundation. It's completely free, we're just sharing that with you. A four week devotional, videos, books that you can go at your own pace, because at the end of the day, we don't want just head knowledge. We want you to believe it in your heart and to live it out in power. And together, we can help every man, woman, and child experience Jesus because faith is not just an app. It's our operating system. And it changes everything we do. Will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us power. Thank you for giving Peter and John that boldness to stand up in front of that council and proclaim your name. Thank you for healing that crippled man that could stand there in front of that group of transformed life. Help us to live transformed lives. Help us to understand that our faith should impact everything that we think, that we say, and that we do. And that when we tap into that power, when we receive the Holy Spirit into our life, God, it changes everything. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Help us love you more today than we did yesterday and help us to love others the way that you have loved us. Thank you for being faithful even when we are faithless. Speak to us even in our doubts. 
We give everything we have to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.